Hello, and welcome to show eight of All Back to Bowie's Dancing with the Big Boys, Negotiations After Yes with Jim Sillers. This was a really uh, good show. I enjoyed this enormously. Jim is such good value. Um, he has such a weight of experience, and he uh, has seen you know, the Scottish independence movement and campaign and uh, since long before the 1979 referendum. But it was brilliant to hear his insights and I think Peter asked him some super questions. I, it's a very yesy show. Uh, we've got Lady Alba to start us off, the poet Kevin Cadwallader. We've got a beautiful performance from Josephine Sillers. It's just, all in all, cracking stuff. Uh, so please sit back and enjoy Dancing with the Big Boys Negotiations After Yes with Jim Sillers Good afternoon ladies and gentlemen uh, Thank you for coming along to, uh, to, uh, to as you know that uh, David Bowie uh, at the Brit Awards sent a messenger uh, to ask us all to stay so we took, up, took him at his word, and here we are in David Bowie's wonderful rooftop yurt um, in Manhattan, uh, enjoying, uh, enjoying the, the, the Manhattan weather, the sunshine, the traffic. If you can close your eyes, you can almost, you can almost feel it, can't you? So um, we have a packed programme um, for you tonight. I mean, today. Packed programme tonight, I'm sorry. Um, and uh, what, so, uh, but the first thing we do, uh, we do two, a couple of things uh, every day. I, I, we, I should say that uh, this is going to be podcast. This kind of records are being kept for the National Library of Scotland. It's all terribly serious. Um, but, w- but one of the things that we do every day, and we keep a running total of this, is on the, the only important question of the referendum, uh, as far as we're concerned. And this is, do you agree that David Bowie's name is pronounced Bowie? <laughs> and we are allowed a yes or no on this. And so we'll, I think we'll go with yes, Bowie, uh, yeah, no, yes, Bowie, and, yeah, and no, Bowie, as a, as a, and we'll keep a head count of this. And I do hope the Electoral Commission aren't in, because we do it very roughly. <clears throat> so, uh, first of all, so can I say, can I have votes for, who's for a Bowie? All right. Oh, one, two. Oh, I, I don't think don't knows are allowed in this particular referendum. Thank you very much. Uh, all right. So, so yes, hands up for Bowie. It says one, two. Call it thirty-seven. Um, and for Bowie. Oh, it's unusually close. 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10, 11, 12, 13, 14, 15, 16, 17, 18, 19, 20, 21, 22. Bob, Bob, you're cheating. You're holding up two hands. I can see that from here. So 26 for, for no. So no. And uh, yes, and, and, uh, and, and can, can I introduce Fiona Ferguson, my co-host today, for the, to do the next little bit. Oh, is it? Yeah. Okay. So we've got mixed up already, um, but the the next part that we're going to do, we're actually going to ask you to find any piece of paper that you might have on your person, bus tickets, receipts, anything that you have, any kind of piece of paper, because you're not just here to sit back and relax. We're going to get you to do something. Yeah, yeah. Um, and each, all back to boys, boys. Uh, we've been asking, <laughs> we've been asking the audience to answer a question, 
The question that we ask you will never, ever, ever be uh, how you're going to vote in the referendum because we've already answered the most important question, I think. Um, and today, you'll have to tell me if I get this wrong. Oh, yes. The question is, when I think of 1979... Dot, dot, dot. I... Dot, dot, dot. Oh, when I think of 1979, I... Dot, 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 dot. <laughs> So uh, throughout the show, if you can have a wee think about that, and at the end we'll maybe read out some of the answers, and all of the answers will be written down and go into the archive, I think. In the National Library of Scotland. In the National Library of Scotland. Um, so I think we are now ready for a very exciting first guest with the biggest hairdo in showbiz, uh, please put your hands together for the one and only Lady Alba Unplugged. Hello everyone. Uh, so my name is actually Zara, but I've got an alter ego called Lady Alba, uh, or Alipa, if, if you can do Gaelic. Uh, and um, Zara is voting yes in the referendum, but Lady Alipa is voting no. So the first thing I'm going to do is take off this badge. And uh, what I'm going to present to you now is uh, the reasons why Lady Alipa is voting no.
is cool. I'm voting no. I don't wanna be friends. Je vais voter non. Parce que j'aime is cool. Je vais voter non. I don't wanna be friends. Thank you. Thank you, Lady Alba. That was brilliant. Um, it's just been pointed out to me that when I think of 1979, I dot, 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 isn't he actually a question? So it's more just filling out the, the end of the sentence, uh, either with what you um, remember or what you would like to have remembered, but you can be as creative as you like, and lovely David will come and collect the responses at the end. Another thing that happens every day at All Back to Boys is that we ask somebody to come and do a polemic to make a provocation. And today we're really, really excited to have Andrew Tickell, who some of you might know as Lalan's peak warrior from his blog. So with no further ado, Andrew. Silal Bulut was a Kurdish Turk. He was a, a painter. He worked, he went to work as he did every single morning, he worked hard and he decided to come home for his lunch. He decided to come home and have a sandwich, have a falafel, something along those lines. And five men stalked him behind him. Uh, they opened fire as he crossed the threshold of his house and he fell down dead. Happily though, the Turkish government was on hand. The Turkish security services immediately appeared and did what any noble, upright police service would do. They left his body bleeding out in the outside, ransacked his house, collected no DNA evidence, collected no bullets, apprehended no suspects. Seti Bulut is his wife. Hatiz Yulut is his daughter. Um, in consequence of this, they went to the Turkish authorities and asked, what are you going to do about our father? Who killed our father? They went for many, many years and found no justice in Turkey. The prosecutors totally ignored them. These people were penniless. They had limited literacy. They didn't understand how the justice system worked. Ultimately, utterly, utterly forlorn, they turned their hope to the European Court of Human Rights in Strasbourg. They tried and petitioned for some hope of justice. We're talking a lot about negotiations at the moment on a whole range of different levels. We're thinking about, well, how is Scotland going to cope when it cuts a deal with Westminster after independence? But there are wider negotiations happening which we should be profoundly concerned about. David Cameron's government wants to take us outside of the European Court of Human Rights jurisdiction. We lose eight cases a year there, but he has no interest in people like City Bulut finding any kind of justice. I find that to be 
profoundly concerning. That is the kind of negotiation which we're talking about. And we shouldn't contrast this idea of independence is uncertainty and the status quo is guaranteed. All we need to do is cast our eyes across Europe to see the challenges and the horrors and the torments potentially which we in this country are facilitating through our Europhobia and the terrifying domination of the Conservative Party by a reactionary, delusional idea of victimisation from Europe. So I think when we're talking about negotiations, we have to be really serious about the range of options which is facing Scotland. And we have to think about people like City Bulut, people in Chechnya, the Roma who are being troubled by governments across Europe. Our country, Britain, our United Kingdom is systematically undermining and trying to renegotiate these, these sort of institutions of which we are part and which represent, for me, a real manifestation of some of the small kinds of justice which we have achieved in our civilization in Europe after the Second World War. So when we're thinking about these negotiations in the European sphere, we have to take really seriously, I think, these perils that await us. I know that Jim's going to talk an awful lot more about, about Scotland's negotiations with the United Kingdom and some of the challenges around that. But I really just wanted to essentially underline the terror which awaits us if we vote no. Uh, I know we talk about Project Fear being, a, being on the kind of no side, but actually... Uh, when we think about the fate that awaits people like Setibulut, people like the Roma uh, who are tortured or not prosecuted if they're, if they're subject to criminal, criminal outrages in, Ro in Romanian countries and other places like that, we really have to think about what Britain is doing on the world stage and the other kinds of negotiations which I tremble for. I tremble for our position in the European Union. I shudder for our fellow, our fellow folk from Germany, people from France, people from the Netherlands who live here, who work here, who make their home here, and for whom Britain is increasingly saying, you have no place amongst us. That makes me tremble. And I think, for me, that's the negotiation which should provoke us and trouble us most of all. Thank you. Thank you very much, Andrew. Um, next, we'd like to invite two very special people up to the stage. Um, Peter Arnott, playwright, who's going to do uh, an extended interview with Jim Sillers. Uh, ladies and gentlemen, um, one of the things that we're asked to do in um, the National Collective and Artists events uh, is oh, thank you. Is um, our journey to yes, and I can't imagine a journey through the history of Scottish politics in the last um, forty years without the gentleman um, who's sitting opposite me. Um, for his, I've just been rereading his um, wonderful 1985 book, um, Scotland: The Case for Optimism. In 1985, that's a brave title. Um, and, uh, and it's, an, it's an inspirational story in every way, and I'm, I'm, I'm deeply honoured to, to have him here today. But Jim, I thought I'd maybe start by... Uh, I know that, you're, that you're, you're just setting out on the road with the Margomobile, and I wonder if you'd uh, tell us a little bit about the Margomobile, what the thinking behind that was, and, and, uh, and what your experience has been so far. Um, I, I didn't want Margot not to take part in this campaign. And we had hoped that she would. And had she done so, I myself wouldn't have taken part in it because I would have given her all the physical support uh, required because of the Parkinson's. But she told me, Margot was told, we're both told that she had probably three months to live unless uh, an infection set in, and that's what happened. 
And she told me that uh, although her health had taken her out of the campaign, it shouldn't take me out of the campaign. And then I thought, why should it take her out of the campaign? Yes. When I'm in the campaign. Yes. So we asked for donations uh, to create a Margot Mobile, which is a travelling, speaking platform, very classy, because my wife is <laughs> very classy. Let classy woman, always. Beautiful, beautifully laid out, <laughs> um, where I could um, carry some of the words um, that Margot has spoken over her lifetime yes. um, in, in terms of her demand for independence. I, I'd just like to quote a couple Please of do. them, which in a sense um, summed up my wife. Out of self-respect comes self-confidence. And out of that comes imagination, innovation, and the whole world opens up with independence. Nothing big and brave ever came of creeping along. <clears throat> it's time to be bold, time for independence. And those words, you know, self-confidence, self-respect, imagination, contrasted with creeping along and the need for us finally as a Scottish people to be bold. So I'm carrying that message as well as um, speeches from myself which are perhaps a bit more left-wing than Margaret. <laughs> Possibly. She was a socialist but I'm even further to the left than she was. Yeah, well, I'm sure I've heard tell of the of the late night discussions in, in your house and how exciting all that was. Um, but but uh, I wanted to also, I suppose to draw on how our questions have been partly about 1979, and before we begin to talk about questions of leadership, which I think are enormously important, um, I wonder, with, given your experience of the 79 campaign uh, and uh, and uh, and uh, of before that uh, and since then, um, how, what's your experience out on the road this time round? Uh, well, 79 was a nightmare for me because I was having to try and persuade Scottish audiences that they were able to run part of their own affairs. This was just for a very, very small assembly, by the way, with virtually no economic powers whatsoever. And I found myself talking to terrified audiences. And I'll give you an example. At the end of the campaign, I'm up in New Cumnock, in the snow. And this uh, woman walked up and down for about eight minutes, and she finally came up to me and said, I don't ken what to do, because my son is a customs and excise officer at Irvine, and I don't want him to lose his job. Now, there was absolutely no possibility with an assembly of him losing his job, but they had managed to terrify her. So I was talking to terrified audiences then. This is different. I am talking to self-confident audiences. I can tell them that we are the 14th richest country in the world in terms of resources. And whereas in 79, they didn't believe it, this time they sort of nod and say, I we can that. And there's a huge difference being able to get folk mobilised in that particular way. And my concentration is on the working class areas. And if there's any middle class folk here, I mean, you, you must forgive me, but the working class are in a majority in Scotland. And I'm trying to persuade them that if they come out to vote yes, we'll have a parliament in which there'll be a working class majority and therefore a working class government which is delivering policies that they desperately need. And that, in the housing schemes, is having a significant effect. The other thing is that the Yes campaign in those days was pretty tiny. I mean, I had to 
fund out of an MP's salary of 3,000-something, the first lot of leaflets for yes. That's not happening this time. We're able to raise funds. We've raised funds for the Margo Mobile. We're raising more funds because we want to do more on that campaign. It's a transformation of the position. And I am quite convinced we'll win by at least 55% of the poll. That's, well, great. <laughs> so that's another, another thing I, I wanted to, to bring up because, uh, as again, the, the, this, the, I was only 17 back then. But, I, but there's so much that on the no side that is absolutely familiar in terms of the, the, the media campaign, in terms of... I think they're maybe more sophisticated in the... In, uh, because I think of that letter, for example, we'll all have seen the letter from the, 400, from the 200 well-meaning people saying, please stay this, this week. And I think that's fear as well. It says they're frightened, you should be frightened too. And in the midst of the... It's a big bag of tricks, Jim, and you know more about it than most. So, so, I mean, do you think they've exhausted their bag of tricks yet? Oh, no, no, you'll, you'll, <laughs> you'll just get fear, fear, fear. I mean, think of the number of times you've heard them make statements like, we've got to have more vision, we've got to be more positive. Then the next time they come out and tell us the oil will run away in 10 years' time and we'll all be skint, the backside hanging out our trousers, we'll <laughs> all be able to pay this and that and that. It's exactly... The, there is nothing else for them to say. Mm. How can you be positive about better together when Lidl, outside of every Lidl shop in Scotland, there's a billboard that says one in five children in Scotland are living in poverty and we Lidl are part of the STV appeal. How would, you know, why would Alistair Darling answer the question? Alistair. How can we be better together when that's happening in our country? So they don't do that, they don't answer that, they tell you, you can't do it. And by the way, the, the difference this time is, in 79, people did believe that the oil would run out in five years' time. This time, people are beginning to understand there's 21 billion barrels left in the North Sea, and there's a possibility west of Shetland of one of the biggest oil fields and more important than that, for the west of Scotland, there's oil and gas under the Clyde. Do you mind if I explain? Please go, go for the, 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 the MOD and all that. Please do. Chick Brodie, the MSP, should get the equivalent of the Victoria Cross when we're independent. Because Chick went into the National Archives and dug right into them about... Because he'd picked up for the old men in Ayrshire about this talk of oil and gas. And right enough. There is huge oil and gas deposits under the water of the Clyde. Why have we never heard about it? Kept deliberately secret. And he unearthed a letter dated 1983, which refers to a letter dated 1981 from a man called Roger Mansell. Now, you've never heard him. I'd never heard him. Nobody ever elected him. But he was a senior official in the Ministry of Defence. And he wrote a letter all round the rest of the ministries telling them that under no circumstances could there be any exploitation of the oil and gas in the Firth of Clyde. There'd be no oil rigs under any circumstances because at that time Polaris had to sail safely through the Firth of Clyde, past the Ailes of Craig, into the open sea. Trident now cannot safely navigate its way through the oil rigs, so we've been kept in total ignorance. One man, you may remember Grangemouth, when one man could tell you that he'd close the whole of Scotland's oil refinery. Well, this one man stopped us having a major industry. 
That was 1981, precisely the time when Margaret Thatcher's policies were destroying the industrial base of Scotland. So we end up with the North, North Ayrshire, one of the most deprived areas in the whole of the British Isles, Glasgow with a third of our people living in poverty, with high unemployment. I mean, it's unbelievable. You couldn't actually make it up. If somebody told you that, you wouldn't believe it. So Chick really deserves the medal. This time, as I've been campaigning, folk are beginning to twig, hey, wait a minute. We, we were deceived and lied once. We're not going to be deceived and lied against. This time, we're not going to listen to them. And I think that's a big, big difference. It, it is a big difference. Um, I was, uh, yes, uh, the, uh, yeah, the, the, uh, but do you feel, there's a passage in your book where you say, uh, where you say that ultimately, the fa- in the sense that, the, 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 I mean, there was a complicated story in 1979. Uh, the, it, we won, the, it, was, it was a majority of the votes, but it wasn't, it was less than the 40% and all that. But in a sense, what you do, did really well, I think, in the book, was to cut through all that and said that was a failure of leadership. Ultimately, it was a failure of leadership. Now, we're, if, if and when we get the yes vote, we are going to be negotiating. Um, you have also described Scotland's political leadership as basically accomplished lobbyists, yeah. but people who, have, who, who lobby, who are, are, the, the political function is to, is to lobby London for favours, and that's a subservient position. We will suddenly find ourselves no longer lobbying. Are we up to it? <laughs> uh, yes, I believe we are, and by the way, Um, We don't go to London to negotiate. We tell them to come to Edinburgh. And there's a very sound reason for that. (laughs) I've looked at the history of the negotiations between London and all the countries that got independence from them. They bugged all their bedrooms and all their rooms so they knew what they were saying. So I would like them to come to Edinburgh. If they don't like Edinburgh, we can go to Dublin and the Irish can bug who they like. One of the the things that I'm so pleased about in this campaign is the new leadership that has come through. This is the greatest civic movement Scotland has ever seen. People who've never been involved in politics before suddenly have become involved. And we're engaged in a great exercise of self-education and politicisation. So this time, uh, the leadership is not going to be what we call the orthodox leadership. On that ballot paper, it doesn't say anything, for example, about the Scottish Government. Alex Hammond's name's no mention, nobody else has mentioned. And there are people like me who say, after independence, on the one minute past 10, we're saying there's a number of folk who delivered this victory, delivered it, who are going to be involved in actually producing the brief for the negotiators. Uh, I, I debated with Douglas, Douglas Alexander over in Renfrewshire and he actually said in that debate, if there's a yes vote, I want a constitutional convention. And I said, that's a great idea actually because we can call everybody in and they can appoint the basic negotiating team that draws up the brief and says who leads it. Yeah. Uh, one of the, the, the no campaign have been very successful in this sense that they've glued the referendum to the name of Alex Salmond. The whole idea being, if you don't like Alec, you vote against that, and down comes the referendum. But the fact of the matter is, and this has got nothing against Alec, of course Alec will be involved in the negotiations. Of course we'll engage the machine of the Scottish civil servants. 
But Alec and nobody else has a mandate at a minute past ten to actually say, I can lead the negotiations. There's a bill went through the Scottish Parliament to set up the referendum, never mentioned anybody who was going to lead it. So there's a lot of able, very able young people. Now, for me, able young people means from 19 to about 45. <laughs> uh, but there's a whole group of them, extremely capable, who will want to have a say in those negotiations. Got a different kind of leadership in Scotland now. Yes, I mean, one of the things is, is that you have experience of the corridors of power, of the of, of the, the the inner workings of the labour the labour group in, in Parliament, for example, to, to name but one Byzantine form of uh, decision making, and uh, and I was and if there was a, an imaginary exercise, uh, there's for example there's been a vote in the Scottish Parliament this week, and this is potentially controversial, I think. Um, on, uh, on, on an insistence that no matter of a, a, a pre-negotiated position on the removal of Trident, for example, just as we have a pre-negotiated position from the UK government on currency union, for example. Now, those both of those things are, are before negotiations start. Um, you, you're an experienced negotiator. Is that how you do it? Well, I, I'm actually I'm an ex-trade union official, and I never went into a negotiation without having several positions and also examining the strength and weakness on the other side of the table. And that's very important. We go into the negotiations, we've got strengths and they've got weaknesses. One of their biggest weaknesses is Trident. Now the reason they want to hold on to Trident isn't that they want to hold on to weapons of mass destruction. Trident has become more political than it is military. If they lose Trident, how do you think they sustain their position on the United Nations Security Council? 55 million of them with a bomb. And you've got Brazil, you've got India, you've got Mexico, you've got Indonesia saying, hey, wait a minute. You know, why are you there and not us? So their position would become very vulnerable. So their position on Trident makes a weakness. If we were daft enough to say, in a fortnight's time, out it goes. You're throwing away a strength for us and a weakness for them. You actually say to them, well, look here, we understand your position. We don't want to damage it in the United Nations Security Council. We don't want your seat. You keep it. But there's a price to be paid for that. The biggest issue before us in negotiations is the amount of national debt we shall inherit. And you say to them, well, it might take you five or eight years to actually rebuild a base south of the border than you can take Trident. So there'll be a rent during that period, which we will discount from the national debt. And of course, during that period, we'll only be able to do a certain amount of digging the oil out of the Clyde. So we'll also have a discount for that as well. That's one way. And then you say to them, the other thing is, a third of the national debt at the moment, that's 1.3 trillion, is held by the Bank of England. You know, quantitative easing works in this way. The British government needs to borrow 100 billion. A bank buys a bond for 100 billion. British government pays them interest. In order to get the bank 100 billion back for other things, the Bank of England buys the bond off them and the British government pays its own Bank of England interest. Last year, the interest came to 35 billion and George Osborne says, I'll have that back. This is funny money. Now. 
If we allow ourselves to be kidded that we should take 8.9% of the 1.3 trillion and a fortnight later they cancel the debt because of a government institution owning its own government debt, they can cancel that tomorrow morning and we're left the biggest, saftest of the family. So, you know, these are the things that you actually have to go and examine. The other weakness is that Osborne, they had to do it, said that even if Scotland's independent, we will take responsibility for that whole 1.3 trillion debt. Now there's a weakness for you. We can say to them, well, we're not taking any of that unless you agree to this or unless you agree to that. So they're in a very weak position. We're in a very strong position because, and this is the currency union thing, which I don't agree with, but I understand the technicalities. Scotland exports more than it imports. Our exports going into the United Kingdom exports help make their balance of trade deficit a bit better. If we withdraw, we draw 40 million tonnes of oil, about three and a half billion uh, worth of whiskey and the salmon and everything else, if we withdraw that from their balance of trade, then they're in a very, very difficult position with the financial institutions. So we would have to use those trends and weaknesses sure. in order that we come out of it in a very good position. Yeah, because, because the thing is, again, it, it does seem to be that um, the biggest surprise, the biggest cultural shock for the Yes campaign has been that the, that the No campaign has played hardball. Well, this is the British state you're dealing with. What do you expect, I suppose, is the thing. And, and, uh, I, I, and, and I suppose, um, lastly, and again, to reflect on... Um, the leading pol the confusion on the S campaign, it seems to me, has been a confusion of leadership as to which direction it's going to go in. And in a way, the high, the high profile stuff on the telly has been uh, a softly, softly uh, changes no change kind of a, a t attempted approach, which people simply haven't bought. And, and I wonder if, because you, if you, your experience, I mean, in the last few couple of months, just out there, people aren't buying that, but will, but, but will they, is, can, do, you, do you feel the case is being made and being made in, in other terms than are being used by the leadership of the campaign so far? Aye, the, 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 the media campaign's got nothing to do with the real campaign that's happening on the ground, let me tell you. Absolutely nothing to do with it. There's a young group called Radical, the Radical Independence Campaign. Absolutely wonderful. And I've talked meetings with them. There are folks standing up, we're talking about socialism for the first time in many, many years without the audience fainting. <laughs> yeah. And you, you can then expound on how a socialist policy will have a significant impact in the 157,000 families without a house, the 250,000 children who are living in poverty. You can tell folk that. We're, I'm no campaigning for the white paper. The white paper's not on the ballot paper. I'm campaigning for what happens from the 19th onwards. And we're going to have an entirely different radical agenda that's coming. I mean, I, I go around telling all these young folk, don't you go home on the 19th of February. You turn Scottish politics upside down. We have not only the chance of a lifetime for independence, that's only step one. Step two is what we do with the power we get with independence, and that means a radical left-wing programme, a major shift in the balance of wealth and power to the working people and their families. And that, that 
That's what's winning the referendum. I mean, I'm going to meet, not just me, we're going to meetings with 200, 300, 400, 500 people. At a meeting I did in Edinburgh a fortnight ago, married lassie, got up at the back, and she said, I'm just an ordinary housewife. She says, but this campaign has done something that nothing else has ever happened before. Me and my neighbours are politicised. Nobody can pull the wool over our eyes ever again. I've had to think about economics. I've had to think about social policy. I've had to think about currency. I'm politicised and I am not going back to where I was previously. And I think that counts for the most of the Scottish uh, working class. If I'm, I say again to the middle class, I'm very sorry. Um, I have a middle class lifestyle, you know, and all the rest of it. But I think I am a working class person. I was uh, born in the working class. I was elected by the working class and I've tried to represent them all the days of my life. We are the majority and we can have the power. And what I'm saying to the working class people is think of our history. Think of the energy we have had to use in defending ourselves. Way back in 1915, the women went on a rent strike in Glasgow to try and defend the standard of living of their families. We've been trying to defend ourselves against unemployment, against closures, against the destruction of Ravenscreen, against the poll tax. Now it's against the bedroom tax. Now I've said to those audiences, think what it will be like when we don't need to do, use that energy to defend ourselves any longer, we can use it for the positive purpose of transforming this society for the working class and their families. That's the message that's getting through. The Scotsman can publish as many lies as it <laughs> likes. They are no bothered with it any longer. That's wonderful. Well, we're just coming towards the end, and I think what Jim says about the transformative experience of this campaign, in a sense, no matter what the result, Scotland's already changed, has already changed, and it's, it's, and it's something quite new. But I think today we have heard, uh, there's, and I hope you don't mind me saying so, Jim, but there's plenty to come yet from the old school. Thank you very much, Jim Sellers. Thank you, Jim. Uh, I can certainly agree about the, the scale and the energy at meetings. I think the first time I met Jim was when he very kindly came to do an iTalks uh, video for us where we filmed 19 people doing speeches in the Pierce Institute in Govan. We very hopefully expected around about 50 to 80 people to turn up and in fact we had over 500 over the day. Uh, there's real appetite out there to hear what people have to say. Um, one of the other regular slots on All Back to Boys is that we ask a poet to come. And today we're really, really delighted to have Kevin Codwallander, who is also hosting the BBC Poetry Stand at the Fringe. So I'll let Kevin introduce his poems for you. Thank you. Hello. Um, as you can tell by my accent, I'm totally Scottish. Um, I've, I always kill microphone stands. Um, I'm actually, uh, I have a grandmother who is uh, Scottish, a grandfather who's Irish, and a grandfather who's Welsh, and a grandmother who's English. So that makes me kind of like the union, really, doesn't it? 
This is my petition for divorce. Petition for decree NISI on the marriage sanctioned by law at the Treaty of Union July 1706 and the Acts of Union 1706 and 1707 and that incident in 1979. It was never any more than an arranged marriage, a marriage of convenience, hardly a union of love. Bought and sold for English goals, Burns said. All the promises made broken once you had your way. The Duke of Queensbury was cheered in England and jeered in Scotland. Nothing changes much, everything changes much. The miserable and languishing condition of all places that depend upon a remote seat of government. And that's just my flat on Easter Road. <laughs> the three legal reasons for divorce are one, the partners have been living apart for more than a year. Two, <laughs> cheating. And three, physical or mental abuse. I think you can see that all three things are true. Even as far away as Westminster, but the abuser never admits to abuse. We have been speaking different languages for centuries, separated by a common tongue, conjoined by oil, missiles, but not football fields. You buy peas pudding, you buy macaroni pie, you eat jelly deals, you eat haggis, you call us Sassanac and the old enemy, and we think you steal goalposts. <laughs> don't break Britain, don't let Scotland be free, don't let the evolution of history unfold naturally. Don't break the Union, don't untangle the Union jack straws. Don't break Britain, don't let all the people who live outside of that fat belt we call Westminster break away. Don't let England be only London. Restore order. Machiavelli said, the state oppresses and the law cheats. Tax bleeds the unfortunate, no duties imposed on the rich. The rights of the poor is an empty phrase. God save us from the union, from flags of convenience, from royal weddings, funerals, the proms, and Sir Elton John. God save us from the Queen, from anti-Catholic bonfires, from racist patriots everywhere. God save us from the Empire and from accept accepting its medals. God save us from the additions to the national anthem, shameless propaganda against rebellion. And you wonder why the Flower of Scotland is sung with such fierce defiance or why they don't cheer at English victory or with union pride. God save us from God. God save us from all gods. God save us from saying England when we mean Britain, from treating national sovereignty as a regional issue. God save the Scots from English law. Break Britain. Let Scotland be free. Let the evolution of history unfold naturally. Break the union. Untangle the union jack straws. Break Britain. Let all the people who live outside of the fat belt we call Westminster sign a decree absolute. Let England be only London. Or stop pretending that it isn't already. Scotland must negotiate the right to turn away English £20 notes in newsagents. <laughs> For all those times when I was in London, Scotland must negotiate the repatriation of tartan from its Victorian English roots. Alba must negotiate the equality of I with yes, ticking the I box with a personal saltire. 
England must negotiate to import Scottish whisky. Although for me, England can have all the book fast it wants. There will be no negotiations over Andy Murray. The BBC will be only allowed to refer to him as Scottish. The BBC can keep its name but not its bias, or it can keep its bias but not its name. Scotland must negotiate the annexing of the Geordie nation, if only to liberate the canny lads and lasses of the two. England mustn't sulk in a corner after a yes vote. It mustn't attempt to take back things it has no right to take back. It mustn't spit out the dummy or Osborne statistics. Osborne, a verb to lie in the most cynical way possible. George Osborne is the 21st great grandson of King Henry III. It's true. I googled it. It must be true. England must not make threats, it has not the power to deliver or use its media to make those threats. Yes, like that's going to happen. From the naughty step of no to the winner's rostrum of yes. As an Englishman, sort of, well, I'll take you to task if you call me it. I declare non-consummation of the marriage due to licensing laws. We were circumstantial bride and groom at best in an abusive relationship. Lions are vicious, dumb and carnivorous. Unicorns are legendary creatures with magical properties. It was never going to end well. We both knew that. Negotiations after yes? Aye, no, maybe aye. This is the part of the show where we ask for your bits of paper, which I've realised already I didn't uh, remind people enough. But David will come round and collect your bits of paper and we'll read some of them out. I should also perhaps to take this hiatus to um, an an announce that tomorrow uh, we're talking about um, Tory Scotland. Yeah, so, so we're, um, um, we're, uh, to, we're, we're, in the interest of balance, being, you know, addicted to such things, um, we are, we're talking to Tory Scotland uh, tomorrow, and wondering what happened to it, and, I w- and any of you who do come back tomorrow, I would ask you to be very, very polite uh, when you come. Thank you, because we're, we have to be nice. We have to show them that we're nice. So, yes, do you have a... Oh, I, 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 well, I don't have the, da- I, I don't have the names on me. Alex Massey, and Alex Massey is, is, is uh, David Torrance. We have two, if you like, of the Young Turks of of the of the uh, of, of the, uh, uh, the no campaigning writing. Some of that, some of the some of the most entertaining uh, and provocative writing, and hopefully they will both be entertaining and provocative. Alex Massey of the Spectator, if you want to to, to Google him, and David Torrance of Absolutely Everywhere, as far as I can make out. Uh, they have both have very nice jumpers. Yes. Yes, if you were wondering what a Scotland look run by playwrights would look like, <laughs> this is it. Splendid. We shall take a random sample. Let me pick one. Here we go. Oh. Oh, well, it doesn't, this doesn't quite answer the formula. I was living in the Netherlands. I am Dutch and was still to meet my Scottish husband. Well, good for you, whoever you are. That's very nice. Um, I have one here on a flyer uh, that says, in 1979, I, 
realise Scotland got shafted. Right. Okay, and uh, why just have a? I have here a, 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 a box office receipt, and in pencil, it says, "When I think of 1979, I think I should be wearing my silver, silver lame jacket today." They're very good. Yes, absolutely. And, well, this is Bowie's house, after all. So. Uh, I have one here that uh, I don't. Ah, see, that's the signature. In 1979, I feel cheated. Tam is a bam. <laughs> Which particular Tam did you have in mind, everyone? Anyway, it's, uh, oh, that Tam, no, Tam DL, of course, yes. Yes, I don't know, Tam, Tam DL's, I, I think Tam DL has to be honoured as a prophet in some ways, um, insofar as he, he, he said that devolution is a slippery slope to independence. He was right about that one. Um, when I think of 1979, I remember uh, starting the best job I've had. There you go, lovely. This is a very sweet one. Um, in 1979, I wish I was there. Oh, it's bless. Okay, I think this is, this is probably the last one, I think. Let's, oh, no, this is a major statement I have here. Um, yes. When I think of 1979, I know my life had changed dramatically, but can't remember how it was. I thought that was the 60s, not the 70s. If, yes, if you remember it, you weren't really there. Um, is this a, a last one, I think? Or, or, uh, no, this, oh, is oh, this, is the, this is the your introduction. Please take the mic. Um, th first of all, thank you very, very much. You've been a lovely audience. This is my first co-hosting. I hope it won't be my last. Uh, but you've been a really lovely audience. Um, I think it's really important to say that we all have to squat down to get back out that door at the end. But once you've made it to the other side, we'd really love it if you came to join us in the, I think you call it the Brown Cafe, which is just opposite the door. We haven't had any time in the shows to actually have much audience um, participation in terms of questions or so we're all available after the show if you want to come and talk to us. We're going to finish today with something really special, I think. Uh, it's a lovely singer called um, Josephine Sillers, who took me quite a while to realise it was that Sillers. So she is, in fact, Jim's uh, granddaughter, and we heard a kind of interesting fact, which is that he has never heard her play in this kind of situation before. Uh, they can argue that one out at the end. Uh, but Josephine, do you want to come up? Um, fresh off the Estival tour, I think you did the Western Isles leg. So give us a wee second to set up the keyboard and put your hands together for Josephine Sillers. Well, I didn't bring my own keyboard upon discovering there was one here, which I'm really glad about because the train this morning was absolutely hectic. Except my piano um, stands on an ironing board, 
So I'm not used to this fancy thing that is apparently a keyboard stand. <laughs> um, yeah, so I'm Josephine Sillers. Um, I'm just off the Estival tour with National Collective, which was absolutely brilliant. And this is actually the very first time at any of the gigs that I've done with all these political people that have actually been introduced as Jim Sillers' granddaughter. Literally no one ever realises. <laughs> so, um, I'm going to play a pretty depressing song, um, to be honest. I don't know, actually, because I could do my own song, which is pretty depressing, or I could do a cover, which is pretty fun. So, what do you guys think? Fun song. Nice. Cool. <laughs> Um, this was the one that I did on the tour of National Collective because I felt it's kind of the most relevant to the referendum, although I didn't originally write it as such. I originally wrote it after reading some Seamus Heaney poetry, in particular the poem called Ministry of Fear. Has anyone read it? No? A long time ago. It's a very good poem and um, yeah, I wrote, I wrote it just after reading, so if anyone like, really wants to come talk to me about it, you can, but no one ever does. <laughs> um, it's kind of what, about what I don't want to happen in an independent Scotland. The sort of main theme of this song is separation, but in a negative way. So here's what I don't want to happen. And if anyone complains that it is too depressing, I'd like to say that I had a gig in Amsterdam earlier this year, and a Dutch man said he liked the song about the feet. The song is called Little Footsteps. So if you do find it too depressing, it's internationally acclaimed. <laughs>
any of our guests if they've got anything they would like to tell you about properly known as a plug um, so if any of our guests want me to plug anything they have no yes come up sup I'm back yeah <laughs> um, yeah plugs okay cool um, if anyone particularly liked what they heard, I've got badges outside which are for free, so just grab as many as you like. I have absolutely loads because I ran out on the National Collective Tour, and then I had another gig, so I had to order loads more for that one gig. So I've got hundreds. Take as many as you want. And this is my first gig at the Fringe. I'm actually topping and tailing it with all back to bowers because I think I'm back on the 19th, Great. which is my last one of the Fringe. And in between that, I'm doing National Collective Presents tomorrow, as well as free gigs of my own in Tron on the 13th and 14th and Forest Cafe on the 18th. So if you liked what you heard, I'm on Facebook. Come see me, <laughs> please. <laughs> and I believe we can also exclusively reveal that Lady Alba may be appearing on the Margot Mobile, so watch this space. Yes, but the Margot Mobile will be coming to a town near you, so I think you should come and support that. I also wanted to mention uh, Jim's new book, which is In Place of Fear 2, uh, which is, uh, those, of the, those of political nerds among you will know that In Place of Fear 1 was, was Nye Bevan and his programme for socialism in Britain, and this is the programme for socialism in Scotland, so there we go. So you should, you should, everyone should go and have a read, and, uh, and come and support the Margot Mobile. Yeah. There's only one thing left to say which is come join us in the bar. And you can even use this, which I've been reliably told is Scotland's new currency. Thank you very much. Okay, so these are the uh, sentences for um, the Jim Sillers show. And the sentences go, when I think of 1979, I... Dot, dot, dot. When I think of 1979, I know my life changed dramatically, but I can't remember how it was. When I think of 1979, I regret the squandering of hope, waste of time. I was on the brink of my university education. My wish for those in the same situation now in Scotland is that their experience is less culturally confused and then subsequently positive energy possibly transforms a country. When I think of 1979, I wish I had been old enough to vote. When I think of 1979, I remember starting the best job I ever had. When I think of 1979, I think I should be wearing my silver lame jacket today, maybe tonight. When I think of 1979, I think of the first day I spent as referendum curator, helping out a display of earlier campaign materials for home rule. 
When I think of 1979, I think of casting my first referendum vote for yes and collecting my first student grant. When I think of 1979, I wish I was there. When I think of 1979, I feel cheated. When I think of 1979, I realize Scotland got shafted. When I think of 1979, I remember the correlation between the year of my birth and the year Thatcher became PM. It becomes less relevant as the years go on. When I think of 1979, I was living in the Netherlands. I'm Dutch and still to meet my Scottish husband. When I think of 1979, I'm ashamed to say I voted Tory. When I think of 1979, I was seven. For that year and the next ten till I left home, I watched Dad shout at the news over dinner. When I think of 1979, I think of a wake in a flat in Morningside where people didn't even take their coats off. When I think of 1979, I think of anarchy in the UK. I wish we'd rejected a failed state and created a new future. When I think of 1979, I think of clay, clay, clay. When I think of 1979, I think about Thatcher coming to power and the police too. <coughs> When I think of 1979, I'm back in my student days and Thatcher's just been elected. Nothing's been the same since. I know the three-day week and save water, bath with a friend is behind me. I still can't believe we have no proper, proper energy policy. Or that the Lothian Regional Council took a day's pay off me as a teacher then for a half-day strike for the miners in the early 80s. Apathy, trepidation, conniving around the devolution referendum. When I think of 1979, I put my head in my hands and weep. When I think of 1979, I think of the fashion I missed out on. When I think of 1979, I think what a totally missed opportunity it was. I don't want 18914 to be the same missed opportunity. When I think of 1979, I think of a stolen election result and Thatcher. When I think of 1979, I remember leaving home, family and country, Trinidad and Tobago, for the unknown land of my birth, Scotland. When I think of 1979, I think democracy should not be tampered with like that again. When I think of 1979, I remember how they changed the rules of democracy to steal the vote from the people. Too wee to vote in 1979. When I think of 1979, I think that humans are fundamentally the same, but society and the world is entirely different. When I think of 1979, I wish I'd been there. When I think of 1979, I was in my prime and voted yes back then too. When I think of 1979, I was looking forward to the birth of my daughter who was here with me today.